Hello there. Thank you for being a loyal Key Conversations listener. We've had so much fun making this podcast for you and are getting ready for another great season of meaningful dialogue with some of the brightest minds in the country. Look forward to that once the academic year gets going again. In the meantime, enjoy this replay of an earlier episode and have a wonderful summer. Thank you for joining us for Key Conversations with Phi Beta Kappa. I'm Fred Lawrence, Secretary and CEO of the Phi Beta Kappa Society. On this podcast, we welcome leading thinkers, visionaries, and artists who shape our collective understanding of some of today's most pressing and consequential matters. Many of them are Phi Beta Kappa visiting scholars who travel the country for us, visiting campuses and presenting free public lectures that we invite you to attend. For the Visiting Scholar schedule, please visit pbk.org. I have been looking forward to today's episode for months, and I hope you will share my enthusiasm and admiration for my guest today, author Edwige Dandica, a celebrated novelist, essayist, and memoirist, and a MacArthur Genius Grant recipient. She's a proud Phi Beta Kappa member from Barnard College in 1990, and her extraordinary book, The Art of Death, Writing the Final Story, was a nominee for the Phi Beta Kappa Christian Gauss Award in 2018. She has received numerous awards, including the American Book Award for the Farming of Bones and the National Book Critics Circle Award for Brother I'm Dying. She's received multiple honorary doctorates and the Neustadt International Prize for Literature. Today, we're so lucky to have her in studio to talk about her latest work, a collection of stories called Everything Inside. Welcome, Professor Danticat. Thank you. Thank you for having me, Fred. It's a pleasure to have a chance to talk a little bit today about all of the extraordinary writing you've done. You move so fluidly among various genres, fiction, literary criticism, and memoir. It's tempting just to think of it as one great field. In fact, you provocatively quote in one of your works, Flaubert's letter to his lover, Louise Collette, the poet, that a good sentence in prose should be like a good line in poetry unchangeable. So do you approach different genres differently, or is it just writing one unchangeable sentence after the next? Well, I think of um, the whole project of writing as one big um, task, and I think of it all as um, storytelling, and and some stories emerge as novels, some as short stories, and some as uh, nonfiction. And often the most urgent things, like if I have something I feel like I want to see right now, I'll do it in nonfiction, I'll do it in an essay or in an op-ed. But the fiction takes a little bit longer to go from idea to creating characters to embodying people. But I, I see it all as, uh, as a common project which involves storytelling. Do you remember a time when you first thought, I'm a writer? Well, I was told a lot of stories when I was growing up. My my family had a lot of storytellers, and my aunts and my grandmother would just tell stories. And I remember watching people telling stories orally, and there was such a performance element to it. You know, they would sing, they would move around, and I was a really shy little girl, so I thought, I, I don't think I can do that. Um, and But I enjoyed, you know, being the recipient of the stories. But when I was four, my uncle gave me a book, the Bettelman's um, Madeline book, and just reading that book, like sitting with that book, and I thought, oh, this is another way of telling stories. I didn't know how books were made. I didn't know 
what an author was necessarily, but I thought this is how I feel like I could do it. So I feel like that's the first time I ever thought consciously about like, I want to tell stories in this way. And then as I read more books in, in school and a lot of the books we read for school, you know, in my time in Haiti were by, you know, dead French men. <laughs> and so I thought, oh, it would be sad if I had to be dead and French to be a writer. But not, there, there not must... only that, but also a man, apparently. <laughs> exactly. I'm like, but there, there must be another way. And eventually when I started to form this idea of what, you know, authors and, and books, I thought, oh, this is what I want to do. I want to do for people what these, what reading this material is doing to me. So when you read Madeline as a four-year-old, you didn't think of yourself as Madeline. You thought of yourself as Bellman's. Um, it's funny. Like, nobody's ever structured it like that. I guess that's why you're Phi Beta Kappa. <laughs> as, as are you. <laughs> yes. That's why we're so smart. <laughs> but, um, but yeah, I, 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 I guess I had thought of myself as, as, as Bellman without, like, thinking it that way. But there was also a very strong identification with Madeline because there were these girls— and without their parents. And I was in Haiti. My parents were in the United States. They had migrated ahead of me, and I'd left me with my aunt and uncle. And I was in a house with a lot of young people like me, whose parents were in the Dominican Republic and Canada and different places, and who were there, you know, knowing, like, their parents would eventually come for them. So I also felt a kind of identification with this, like, these little girls. They're the nuns, you know, and my, and my aunt and uncle were older people. So we were like, these really young kids with these older people, and then the Madeline and these girls were with these nuns who were, you know, just kind of like grumpy the same way that our, my aunt and uncle were sometimes. So there was that identification too. I think it was the two coming together and then thinking, how do you do that? How do you make that thing that transcends like the identity of the people you're reading about and still connects with a little girl in Haiti? So you came to the States when you were 12, mm -hmm. which means you have real live memories of that time in Haiti. I mean, you were a, a full-blown person during your time there. Absolutely. And I can tell, and, and I think about the difference because I, you know, I have cousins who came younger, and I sometimes compare, like, what we remember. And I think 12, in a way, was like the, the perfect cutoff age to have formed really, you know, memories that are my own as opposed to what it was, like, force-fed to me. And sometimes when you're young, you're like, you're wondering— there are still things in my life that I'm thinking, was I told this? I remember. Right. Do, or, I, do I remember this or do I remember being exactly, told about this? Exactly. But I have a lot of memories that are my own. And even and, and I know they're my own because even when they're contested by others, like someone will say, no, that's not what I remember. I'm, I still feel a certain sort of certainty in what I remember. Ownership of your own memories. Yeah. So I think at 12, you start having that. And and I probably couldn't have written the stories that I have written, you know, without that certainty of memory. Like, okay, this is my story at 12. It differs from other people's stories, even if they were 12 or older. But this is my version of things and having a kind of certainty with that. How old were you when your parents moved to New York? Well, it was in stages. The, the move, my dad um, moved when I was two. And he only knew one other person in, in Brooklyn, New York, was, who was my mother's brother, my uncle Justin. And so my dad came first, and then two years later, my mom joined him. They left doing the dictatorship and hated doing the Duvalier dictatorship. And so their goal was always, you know, to go ahead and work 
and and then send back for my brother and me, who they, they had left behind with my aunt and uncle. And they were undocumented for many years in the United States. My mom worked in a in a textile factory. Uh, my dad worked in a—he used to tell the story of working in the daytime in a, in a car wash and then in the evening in a glass factory. So he was always sick because he was, you know, cold and hot, you know. And one job was for, you know, his life in Brooklyn, and one job was to send money back for us to have our life, the life that, that they're having left made possible for us in Haiti. So speaking of whether these are memories you have or memories you're told, so are these stories that once you got to America you heard about, or is this part of the story of a young girl in Haiti hearing these stories that are taking place in Brooklyn, New York? Well, my father's, uh, my memories of my father when I was a girl are all borrowed memories because people would say, you know, my parents were married five years before they they had uh, me and they wanted kids, but they couldn't have kids. And, and, and a very traditional Caribbean family, it's like you get married and then like nine months later, your kid pops out. You know? And so my mom, the fact that it was five years, you know, she was called names. And so my, you know, I was always told the stories like how much how welcomed I was, how much my father loved me. And and so those I, you know, th- and those also carried me through, like, because I didn't have any memories of even my father's face without pictures after he left. So my memories of my early life with my father are all borrowed memories. But my mother, I remember um, her taking, you know, she took me to school when I was three. And I remember because it was very difficult to be like a three-year-old in like real school because they don't play school in the Caribbean, like at least in Haiti of that time. Right. You're going to school. It's not, you're not going to draw pictures. You're going to learn letters. And so, and it was really tough. So I remember that her marching me to school and like me, like shrieking and crying. Mm-hmm. And, but all the New York memories are Definitely my own and my brothers and I, when we talk about them, sometimes, you know, we remember things differently. But as soon as I got here to the United States, I kept a journal pretty early on that I still have. I have sort of, so I have things that I wrote down because I I was also making, trying to make sense of that transition, you know, from this whole different life into, you know, coming to the United States and like getting used to my brothers, my U.S. born brothers who I didn't really know and living in a building in Brooklyn, New York. And so I, I kept a, a, a diary of, of that. So at what point does your first novel, Breath, Eyes, Memory, come into being in your mind as a novel that you could write? Well, when I was 14 and transitioned from the junior high school, which would now be called middle school, when I landed here, 1981, I landed on a Friday. My dad took me to school on Monday. And I was in this English as a second language class, and I did a year there, and then I had to go to high school. And so um, in high school, I started writing for a newspaper called New Youth Connections, and it was distributed throughout the New York City high school system. You know, kids in my high school read it, kids in other high school read it. And this is an English language mm-hmm. uh, paper. Yeah. So just just so we're, we're clear here, you, you didn't study any English as a as a girl growing up in Haiti, or not no. much to speak of, mm-hmm. um, then you come to to Brooklyn at the age of twelve mm-hmm. and do a year of English as a second language, yeah. and now you have the guts to actually be a writer in English language. Yeah, where, where did that strength come from? I I really don't know. I mean, but I, I it was more like of a, a passion and a desire, I guess. And I remember when they came to the school and they said, "There's this newspaper, you know, teenagers write for it." And back then, you know, there were no computers. Like I couldn't, 
write it and send it. You know, I had to physically take the train, which was a big leap for my parents to even let me. And then I had to go to the office in Lower Manhattan, and then you typed your story there. You know, usually I would write like a longhand version, but I didn't have a typing device at home. So you type it, you bring it to the office, and then you have a kind of editor, and you do this after school. So the first thing I wrote for them was about how we celebrate Christmas. So I remember it was an essay about Christmas, and then I wrote then about my first day in the United States, and I kept writing for them throughout my years in high school. And one of the essays, the one about my first day, when I was done, it was published in this newspaper. I thought, oh, there's more I want to do with that. And so I started writing like a fictionalized version of that about a girl who comes to the U.S. at 12 and kept writing it. And I entered some of it, like I entered a short version of it in the 17 Magazine Fiction Contest. I didn't win, but I got like honorable mention and that encouraged me. And so so all through, you know, I started in high school, but then through college, I kept writing the novel and sometimes I would get inspired right before finals or something. <laughs> and I kept working on it. And um, And when I graduated, I graduated with a big chunk of it. And then I decided I worked for a year and and then started an, an MFA program at Brown and worked on it and it became my thesis. So after Breath Eyes Memory, there's the great Crick Crack, which weaves together stories of women from multiple generations. And then in Farming of the Bones, we get a novel that has a much more overtly political tenor. What's the transition there in your mind and what you're writing about? Breath Eyes Memory was somewhat an emotional autobiography, right? It started in autobiography, and a lot of first novels are like that. And Crick Crack was a compilation of experiences of, it was sort of a, a linear um, generational narrative of, of this family, this matriarchal family. And then one of the stories in Crick Crack, 1937, was about a massacre that occurred to a member of this family. And so I wanted to expend on that in the farming mm-hmm. of bones because it was also a historical moment for the island of, you know, Hispaniola, um, Quisquea, you know, and um, which houses both Haiti and the Dominican Republic and, and some of that historical, uh, you know, path that, that we've traveled together. And so um, Amabel, the main um, character in the farming of bones, was inspired by one of the stories in in Creek Crack, and I wanted to go to a bigger canvas and tell a bigger story. Of course, it's a historical uh, novel, right. so there's a lot more research, a lot of travel, um, and trying to to bring to life uh, this segment of the past. Then in Brother, I'm Dying, which is more overtly memoir um, and also social criticism, I think it's fair to say, um, the, you break through in some way. I mean, you've been well-known before that, but in some way, rather, I'm dying. It's extraordinary work. The Times says it's a mixture of homesickness and homelessness. Mm-hmm. Can you be homesick and homeless at the same time? Oh, absolutely. I mean, I think in some ways that's that's probably one possible way of describing the immigration experience, right, of being a wanderer who's longing for home and in, in, in some cases, especially for people who are exiled. But that's a book that I really wish I didn't have to have written. Like, uh, so it, I, I wasn't intending to write a memoir. My uncle died in immigration custody in 2004 at the same time that my father was sick with pulmonary fibrosis and was dying, and, my, and I was pregnant with my baby daughter. So 
it was a confluence of events that I felt like I wanted to mark, but also to talk about what happens to the vulnerable in immigration custody, um, which is something that I had been and, you know, I was working with immigrant organizations. I was aware of these um, dangers, but it, it just hit very close when my uncle was detained and had his medication taken away and died shackled to a bed in a county hospital near 15 minutes from where I lived, and I wasn't even allowed to see him. So I felt like it was a story that I wanted people to know about because my family wasn't the only one going through it. But at the same time, I wanted it also to be a story of my entire family, of the story of my family. And um, and that's that's really why I ended up writing um, Brother, I'm Dying. Let's shift genres for a second. Uh, the more recent work, uh, The Art of Death, writing the final story inspired by the loss of your mother. Was that a cathartic experience to actually write that work in the period subsequent to your mother's passing? Yeah, I feel like um, The Art of Death was a companion volume to Brother, I'm Dying. You know, Brother, I'm Dying was about my father's death and my uncle was a surrogate father to me. And when my mother died, I, I and my mother had told me like she didn't want to be in that book. She was like, don't write about me in there. It's their book. And so when she died, I really, I had trouble seeing how I would continue in terms of like what what I could write about. And I knew I had to write about my mother in some way before I moved on. And so it was a tribute to my mother and it talks about a whole journey together, you know, towards the end of her life, but also what it was like after she was gone and what I found comfort in, what reading meant to me after that. There's a book about death, which at first blush one would think would be depressing. It's actually not depressing at all. It's really inspiring, uplifting. It's got a redemptive arc, don't you think? Well, most of one of the things that I found through the whole process of writing that book was that, you know, everything that's about death is about life. You know, there's a point in your life, too, when you realize Yes, we all have the same kind of like, like one of the authors in the books, you know, says all stories, and I think I was Margaret Atwood, all stories lean towards death. But what's important is what the living, you know, and we we mourn because there was a life there in between. And so I really wanted my book about death to be as much about life as it was about death. It's the conversation interrupted that we lose, and you want to try to recover that in some ways. And continue it in your own head and in your own own work. Morrison talks about trying to learn and ultimately mastering the skill of not writing for a white audience, learning about people of color. She's writing from her experience. Do you resonate with that? Is that your story too? Well, yeah, her story of the, of the white gaze, I think, I think it's an important um, lesson for all writers of color or writers who, you know, people who are writing for the margins, because there's the temptation of being like a native informant, of, of sounding like an anthropologist. A tour guide. Exactly. You know, and also people, the gatekeepers, the people who are reading the material or selecting it might have that gaze. So I think it's important. I think it's, it was a crucial lesson, you know, f- for all of us that, you know, First of all, we, you know, we write first for us, you know, and then you don't have to explain everything. You don't need a glossary, you know, you're not invisible. Like that she always brought up the example of Raphael and invisible to whom, right? right? right like we're right. not invisible to ourselves. And I think that's a very 
important lesson for writers. It's very affirming that someone of her stature also, she was like, she's writing for us. And, you know, and she's not bending over backwards to explain who she is. And she, by her very body of work, teaches us things that we kind of knew, but we didn't know we knew them until she tells us. So having read Ralph Ellison, I never thought of it through the looking glass in that direction, that, of course, they're not invisible to themselves. Ralph Ellison is not invisible to himself. Mm-hmm. But I didn't know that until Morrison told me that. Exactly. Well, that's the thing, you know, in her eulogy at James Baldwin's funeral, she said, I thought I knew you, but it was myself I knew through you. And right. I think we, she gave us that gift as well. So let's turn to the earthquake. You were certainly a well-known personality and writer by then. You had won the MacArthur Prize, among many, many, many other recognitions. But surely the earthquake in 2010 plays a major role in your sense of self and your mission. Can you tell us a little bit about how it affected you in that way? Well, in a few months now, it will be the 10th anniversary of this. It's hard to imagine that it's been 10 years. It's been been already 10 years, which is extraordinary. I mean, especially... For those of us who've lost loved ones, who, um, you know, as I did. So I think the, you know, the earthquake came at a time where things seemed like they were, you know, going. I mean, in retrospect, you know, everything seemed better, but it was sort of stabilizing. And then the earthquake happened and it's been um, a series of, and then afterwards we had Hurricane Matthew and, and, other natural disasters. And and now, you know, Haiti's going through a very, a different kind of earthquake, a very difficult moment. Like today, as I'm speaking to you, there are demonstrations on the streets, there's gas shortages, there, um, you know, in, in a leadership that is not listening to the people, and there's a kind of uncertainty. There, uh, there are gangs. Uh, so it's a very, it's also a very difficult time for the country at the moment. And and one that's, you know, that is worrisome, especially as we move towards the 10th anniversary of this earthquake. And you bring all of that to bear, your understanding of that situation as well as your own experience as an immigrant to this country in the extraordinary collection of stories and everything inside. I, I don't want to do too many spoilers. I want to be careful here with my spoiler alerts. Uh, but I do want to talk about a couple of the complex characters we get to meet and we get to know and we get to to care about. So speaking of uh, earthquake, could I ask you to read a passage from The Gift? Um, it's a passage that takes place uh, right after the, the earthquake and a teacher, maybe somebody a little bit like you, uh, mm-hmm. is trying to uh, figure out how she's going to respond to the earthquake with a whole room full of people who are experiencing that at a distance. Yes, and this story is also it takes place on the 4th of July. It's about two lovers who are reuniting after, but this is a moment where they're trying to figure out what to do right after the earthquake. The afternoon of the earthquake, she had been at Miami-Dade College teaching. She'd grown close to some of her students that semester, and they'd invited her to a dinner the Haitian Students Association was hosting. They had also invited a popular local Haitian singer named Wo as the entertainment. After she left the class, she was considering not attending the dinner. Then her phone started ringing, and with everyone she loved being far away, with her parents living in Brooklyn, and with other relatives in Paris, Santo Domingo, and Montreal, worried but accounted for, 
and with Thomas on a prolonged New Year's holiday with his wife and daughter in Haiti and not answering his phone, she decided to go to the student dinner after all. What better time to be with other people, she'd thought. There were still no detailed reports. The college reception hall was packed. When she walked in, hundreds of students and faculty were sitting in a wide circle on what was supposed to be the dance floor. The singer Rowo, the closest thing to a spiritual leader in sight, was standing in the middle of the circle. Towering over everyone, he seemed lost nonetheless, flabbergasted, his hands clasped together, his face crumpled. The student association president, an anxious young woman, walked over to Rowo. Sobbing, she asked him to continue his ritual. If only rituals could instantly heal us, Anika had thought. While waiting to see what we would come up with, she repeatedly checked Thomas's and his wife's social media pages and linked to the pages of their friends and their friends' friends. There were no updates, just a stream of expressions of concern and worry. So is there healing? They're looking for ways to heal. If I may, your character in the story is looking for healing. Where do we find healing? Well, I mean, I think there has to be healing. Um, it takes time. It takes time. And and we also have to face the fact that some people will never heal. I think um, when you have such a massive um, tragedy, um, when so many people, there are people, you know, when I've went back to Haiti immediately after the earthquake and even months after, people would say, you know, that person just went to work and never came back because if they, if something happened to them and their bodies was one of the minis that were buried, you know, in a, in a mass grave or... So they were, there was no closure for a lot of people, you know, whatever closure means in these situations. And the, this idea of rituals, right? I think rituals help us frame our grief and a lot of people didn't have that privilege. And so, and I think we also like to think, and I think that's part of what the country's going through right now at the moment. And I think that's something that we'll have to contend with as, you know, as the date gets closer, because anniversaries sort of concretize these things, that what did it all mean? What was it all for? And we like to think that when people die, whether they, you know, they die in these, you know, sudden tragedies or they die in other ways, that it means something. And I think that's, that's where the healing, part of the healing comes from you thinking, oh, at least this was, this meant something. You know, and I think we're still wrestling with that. What, what did it all mean? And one of the characters in that story says that, you know, like, we're all supposed to be better. We're all supposed to have grown. And, and it's, it's heartbreaking when we either backtrack or that, that doesn't happen. You know, everything's inside is, is almost a, a Dubliner's for, for our time, you know, this wonderful collection of characters. Uh, I was reading recently that uh, Howard Jacobson, the British author, Man Booker Prize winner, said that one of the characters in his newest novel is someone he hated at first. And she just came to him. And as he wrote her more and more, he came to love her and he came to decide she's actually his favorite character. Mm-hmm. Have you had characters who have come to you who you've had to wrestle with and you didn't like and then you do like and your attitude changes over time? Mm-hmm. Well, I had a an, a previous character called a dewbreaker in Creole Shuket Laose, who was a torturer during the dictatorship, and and it's a character that I came to. I once met a young woman 
who was talking about her father and, and she's talking about him with such love. And then I realized, like, oh, I know this person. He was so-and-so. And like, if you said it to a certain Haitian of a certain age, they would realize that that man was a killer, but that's this young woman's father. And she was excited that I'm Haitian, he's Haitian. And, and it sort of get me thinking about the way people compartmentalize themselves, right? And so I, so, but writing that character, if I had not had that encounter, I feel like I would have written a more flat, one-dimensional. But I was always thinking, like, those people are loved by some little girl. You know, they're loved by someone. And and to also have that aspect when you're writing someone, even though who've committed, you know, horrendous crimes, and but they're still, like, daddy to somebody. And so to have that multiplicity of characters, I never grew to love that character, but I knew I I felt an obligation to write him as a full human being and understand that somebody loves him. Yes. One of the epigraphs in your book, "Everything Inside," and I hope you have great good luck with it as it comes out right now, is from the great Nikki Giovanni, who said, "We love because it's the only true adventure," which made me think of Helen Keller's famous challenge that life is either a daring adventure or nothing at all. Mm-hmm. Well, I thank you on behalf of all of us, all of your readers. Uh, for sharing with us in your work the most daring adventure of all, and that is the adventure of love. Thank you for being with us today. Thank you very much. Thank you so much for having me. This podcast is produced by Lantigua Williams & Co. Paula Mardo is our sound designer. Hadley Kelly is the Phi Beta Kappa producer on the show. Emma Forbes is our assistant producer. Our theme song is Back to Back by Jan Perchik. To learn more about the work of the Phi Beta Kappa Society and our visiting scholar program, please visit pbk.org. Thanks for listening. I'm Fred Lawrence. Until next time. <laughs>